You're listening to the Branches HB Podcast. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. Happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. Obviously, I'm pro-fatherhood. Five children of my own. Uh, so I'm in it with you guys this morning. Uh, you know, I guess there's a meme going around. I don't know this firsthand because I don't have social media. But I've been told, I've been shown a meme about pastors addressing the congregation on Mother's Day and on Father's Day and the difference on Mother's Day. You know, there's all this kindness expressed toward women, and then when it comes to Father's Day, we're like, hey, get your act together, you know, basically. And I don't understand why that is. Like, I, I think I was left with two impressions of fatherhood when I was, like, surveying the culture that I grew up in. I, I was left with these two images. It, it, you know, fatherhood is really, 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 really important. And, you know, even people that don't believe in God, they just look at the social sciences, right? The studies that have been done, you know, an absentee father, it results in a lot of negative things. So I, I was left with this impression, like, fatherhood is really, really important, but at the same time, not a lot of people really know how to do it. Like, those are the two impressions that I got uh, growing up, and I, and I think I'm left with those even to this day, just that feeling of pressure of like, hey, this is really important, but ambiguity, like, but how do you do it? Right? I think a lot of uh, men can relate to me. And, and really, in this world, I don't think it makes it any easier because women right now are spoken of in glowing terms, which is not a problem. But gl- spoken of in glowing terms, you know, women are brave, they're courageous, they're beautiful, they're worthy. And men are, we're dudes. That's all we are. Like, we're just guys, right? I mean, <laughs> what's spoken of about us? And, and so I understand like that, that ambiguity that a lot of us live in, but I can tell you that I'm so encouraged by all you men in this community because I know that you're driven by the same things as me, that regardless of whether or not society has any clear depiction of what it means to be a man or a father, we all know what it means to be a father because of God's word, because of Jesus' example, because of our Father in heaven, and we all together are committed to that same example. And so I respect all of you, and I am so encouraged to journey toward Christ-likeness alongside you as we fathers learn to parent our children, as you grandfathers learn to parent your grandchildren, and as we step in as fathers to the fatherless, spiritual fathers to the fatherless. Let me pray a blessing over all of us before we move further in our study this morning. Heavenly Father, we do look to you as the perfect example You model for us what this world cannot put into words. And Lord, we are so grateful for you this morning. Jesus, we're grateful that as we step into the role of fathers and grandfathers, spiritual fathers to the fatherless in this world as you commanded us, that we don't do it alone, but that we do it empowered by your Holy Spirit. We do it led by you, our good shepherd. I pray that every single man in this room who has one of these roles, that they would feel that empowerment, that they would know that it is you who is encouraging them along in this journey of life and into your likeness. So, Lord, I'm I'm grateful for them. Encourage them this day in a variety of ways, if only through your presence. And for those who are hurting, for those who are experiencing lack of a father figure, that is such a common story. For those who have lost an important father figure in their life, 
God, I pray that you would be their comfort in so many ways that we lack in this life and we hurt in this life. That can be redeemed because ultimately it can lead us to you. And so, Lord, would you comfort us with the promise that you are truly our perfect Father in heaven. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Happy Father's Day, guys. Have a great morning. I know this morning my wife was like, hey, kids, say happy Father's Day. And they're like, nah. So I, I haven't gotten it yet. I think I'll get there by later today. But hey, you know, before I jump into the study, this is very important. I want to do a little tutorial with our communion because communion is a little different. And last service, when we went into communion, the crinkling went on for like five minutes as people tried as they might, you know, to get this thing open. The secret is to not rip off the top. It's to like fold up the little paper on the top so you can take out the wafer first and then tear off the whole cap to get to the juice. Just like Jesus. Bread first, cup second. That's what you guys are going to do right here. You don't have to do it right now. You're going to be holding that wafer. It's going to be pretty crumbly by the end of service if you take it out right now. But just you know, take your time. with. You might want to get it started, though. All right, just a little tip for when we get there later in the service. We're going to get there. Well, let's open up to Matthew chapter 9. All right, enough with the pleasantries. We're going to jump right into the study. Last week in Matthew chapter 8, we saw Jesus confront both natural disasters and the demonically possessed, all right, with his authority. And it was like he just swatted those things away like they were a gnat in his face. Like, literally, he told the demons, go, and they went. He rebuked the wind and the waves, and they ceased. I mean, that was the authority of Jesus. So the encouragement for all of us was like, hey, we should have some faith. We should trust in Jesus because of his exceeding authority, But it was also not just an encouragement, but a call to us that we would bear spiritual light in the places of spiritual darkness, working in the authority of Jesus, working in his name. Now, the authority of Jesus is a theme that's going to continue on into our study this morning as he heals a paralyzed individual and he heals him not just of his physical infirmity, but ultimately of his spiritual infirmities. He heals him of his sin through forgiveness. Let's look at this together. Matthew chapter 9. Just eight verses here. Let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. I'll give you the context on that if you weren't here last week in a minute. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. So when this episode begins there in verse 1, it says that Jesus stepped into a boat. Why is he stepping into a boat? Well, he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, right? He was in the region of the Gadarenes, and he got the cold shoulder from the people. After healing the two demon-possessed men, they booted him out of town, basically. And so he got back in the boat, and he ventured back to where he began, back in Capernaum. He's in his old haunt. This is where he was doing a lot of his ministry. And back when he was doing ministry in this area... The crowds were gathering around him nonstop, right? Many were being brought to him. And now that he's back in town, the buzz is back around him. 
And you've got these individuals who apparently have carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus seeking a version of some sort of a healing, all right? Now, while Mark and Luke, those two Gospels record that the crowds were so compacted around Jesus that literally they had to lower their friend through a roof so that they could get an audience with Jesus, Matthew leaves out that detail, okay? That detail was like a sign of dramatic faith, but it appears as if Matthew thinks that's just conveyed in these friends bringing their paralyzed buddy to Jesus. Just making that journey meant that they were demonstrating their faith in Jesus, Now, uh, you know, this is a theme that's been developing in the gospel that I want to identify right now, and one that's going to continue in the gospel throughout, this theme of faith, and this theme of faith being a visible attitude that you can see concretely, okay? Let's all just agree that that's what faith is. Faith is a visible attitude. The whole episode starts, verse 2, when Jesus saw their faith. I don't know if the paralyzed man had the faith, if he told his buddies to take him to Jesus, but certainly them carrying him to Jesus, whatever the case, Jesus looked at them and could see their trust in him was a visible reality. And I think this accords with what we see as a definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. It says that faith is confidence in things hoped for, an assurance of things that we do not see. You talk about confidence, you talk about an assurance, right? These are attitudes of faith, right? This confidence in the things that we hope for, this assurance of the things not seen. Two weeks ago, we could identify that sort of faith in the centurion. There was a Roman centurion who has a a servant that's suffering terribly of paralysis at home. He goes to Jesus, and he's got sort of this cool confidence about him. He says, Jesus, I'm someone in authority. I have soldiers underneath me. I tell them to do this, and they go do that. And I tell them to do this, and they go do that. You have that same sort of authority over life and biology itself. So you say the word, and my servant's going to be healed. Okay, that was a visible attitude that Jesus looked at and said, wow, I haven't seen faith like this anywhere. Okay, but then you have the episode last week, right? The opposite is also visible. When the disciples are experiencing the storm in the boat, what happens? They think, Jesus, we're going to die. Save us, right? They're overcome with fear. Jesus says that to them. You have little faith. It was visible. They didn't have faith. They had an abundance of fear instead. Now here we have the opposite again, okay? The buddies have schlepped their friend over to Jesus who's paralyzed. And again, he says, wow, I can see that about you. You trust me. That's your attitude. What would Jesus see when he looks at us? If you were to look at our lives, if you were to look at our attitude, and just you know, view us, when he looks at us, what does he see? Does he see this visible attitude of faith? It has to be something that you can taste, that you can touch, that you can interact with, that, that is evident. If, it, you know, can anyone else in your life, if they were to look at your life, see any evidence of you trusting in God? through your behaviors, through your actions. I think this last year, people have become even more increasingly self-reliant than ever before. I think we were already a pretty self-reliant society, but I think we've become increasingly self-reliant in this last year, not necessarily faith-filled, not necessarily confident or assured of something beyond ourselves. You know, if we get sick or if we're depressed, where do we go? We go to WebMD. You know, we're going to handle this ourselves, right? You go to WebMD, you diagnose yourself, you end up way sicker than you were when you started. 
right? If you were depressed, now you're really depressed. If you were sick, now you're depressed. If you're depressed, now you're also sick, you know, when you get done with the WebMD. But we're like, I got this. I can figure this out for myself, right? If you got this need for financial advice, you just consult all these different, you know, pages on the internet. You kind of put together your own ideas. I think a lot of people, when they're looking for the meaning of life, they don't look to God anymore. They look to Google. They type it in, right? What is the meaning of life? And they see, you know, what kind of results come back to them, and they add it all up, and they say, all right, I guess it's somewhere in between this thing and that thing. You know, we've become increasingly self-reliant. We've created all these tools in our civilization that really take the place of God. And I found, you know, this alarming statistic from the pandemic that people's Internet usage actually went up 70% during the pandemic. And you knew it was already bad. You know, people are, you know, on average four hours a day on their phone, four hours a day on TV, throw in something for the radio. You're like, how could it even go up 70%? Did the days get longer? I knew they felt longer, but where where are people coming up with these hours? 70% increase in the use of the internet. Was there an increase in prayer during the pandemic? Was there an increase in faith? During the pandemic, that dependence, that confidence, that assurance in the things of Christ. As I think about cultivating faith, an attitude that trusts in the Lord, I think about how Jesus taught us to pray. When he taught us the Lord's Prayer, it is this prayer that has an attitude akin to like a spiritually paralyzed person, a spiritually needy person, right? He said, this is how I want you to pray daily, right? That was sort of the idea here. Father, you come before your Father in heaven. You're holy. You're beyond myself. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, right? I'm so small. My life is so small. Your will be done. Give us this day something as simple and basic as my daily bread. Forgive me of my sins, my debts, Because I'm a needy person. I have inadequacies. There's ways I've fallen short as I forgive others. Help me to do what I sometimes can't do myself, which is give the grace that I want to receive and lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. You know, the posture of the Lord's Prayer is is an attitude of faith. It's one that if we prayed on the daily that would manifest itself in a variety of ways that could be visible for others to see. You know, I wonder about that as a father. We're on the topic of Father's Day, right? How will my kids know my faith? How will they know it if they don't see it? How are they going to see my faith if they don't see me praying, if they don't see me depending, if they don't see me seeking Jesus like this paralyzed person, if they don't see me with that cool confidence when a crisis comes that results not from just waking up that day being able to face the crisis, but because I've been prepared every day depending on the Lord so when the crisis hits, that confidence is there. That assurance is there. How are my kids going to see my faith? How are our neighbors going to see our faith? How is this city going to see our faith? How is it made visible? It was made visible in the life of this paralyzed individual and his friends. And as a result, Jesus declares a healing. But surprisingly, as we move on in the text, this isn't a healing for just his physical infirmity. In fact, firstly, it's not even about his physical infirmity. It is about his spiritual needs. So we're going to get to forgiveness of sin in a moment, which is what Jesus declares over this paralyzed individual. 
But before I do that, I want to take a moment to just recognize the general attitude and posture that Jesus has toward the paralyzed man, because to me, it's just as surprising. And it's just a little small phrase here in the text, but I think it's very telling that the first words out of Jesus' mouth to this paralyzed individual are, take heart, son. Now, it's one of those things that, you know, if we just read, you know, a chapter of Scripture, we read two chapters of Scripture, you're just going to pass right over it and not give it any thought, right? But in this one phrase, it's really a depiction of Jesus' posture toward the afflicted. In the original language, that word is not son, that word is child. And in the original language, that word for take heart, it's a single word, compound word, of to warm within is what it means. It's to emit this warm confidence. He's essentially saying to this paralyzed individual, right off the bat, first thing he says is, child, it's all right. Child, cheer up. Now, this is a term and a posture of endearment. A warm endearment. It's something that's a little bit uncommon in this world, especially when you encounter a stranger, because effectively at this point there's strangers. I know my wife was really caught hard when she called into like Amazon customer support. The person picked up the phone all cheery. She's like, oh, I need you know help returning this one thing. And they said, Well, you know, today's my birthday, and we're gonna make this the best customer service experience you've ever had. <laughs> You're like, jackpot, right? When you get that kind of a response, but it's so weird. Because you don't expect anyone to be that warm with you. Everybody's very clinical with each other, right? We can even be very clinical with our friends. You know, when it comes to, like, your friend relationships with guys in our culture, you know, that's especially, I mean, this is Jesus to this man, this individual, especially between even guys that are in close relationship. Like, if you want to express your feelings to another man, if you want to say, I love you, you, gotta, you can't end it that way. you got to say, I love you, bro. Right? you got to say, I love you, man. You know, there's got to be something at the end of it that just takes the edge off it and doesn't make it as warm. Right? It's endearing. But Jesus is perfect representation of the Father. He emits that warmth, that openness, straight off the bat to this individual. You know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't understand this quality about God or this quality about Jesus. You know, I understood that God had loved me through the gospel. And it was, you know, fact-based. Well, I'm a sinner, and I'm deserving of judgment because of my sin. But God is good, and so he's going to satisfy that just requirement by sending his son in my place to take on the consequences of my wrongdoing so that I can be accepted, forgiven in his kingdom. And I look at that, and I go, wow, God has loved me. And that's as far as it went for me. And I could acknowledge that and go, wow, you know, you love me, okay? And have this sort of solemn commitment to following God in obedience to his will. Well, if he's loved me, well, then I'm going to love him by obeying his will. But it ended up being kind of a cold-hearted Christianity. See, I had understood that God had loved me through sending his son Jesus on my behalf. But I didn't understand that God was loving you understand the difference there? Oh, you committed this act of love, you know, and a fact-based kind of like understanding. Okay, yes, he's done this on my behalf. But I didn't understand the warmth. I didn't understand the tenderness. I didn't understand that God is also loving. But as you see in the scriptures, 
There's all kinds of moments where you get that picture, you get that impression, and it makes perfect sense to me now. Of course it goes hand in hand that the same Jesus that would take the place of a sinner dying in their place on a cross would also emit kindness, tenderness, and loving kindness and care to somebody who's physically afflicted. That's the disposition of Jesus. That's the disposition of our Heavenly Father. He is not only one who has loved us, but he is loving toward us. Who are these guys even? Why would they even deserve this sort of posture? It's not like he and Jesus have all this history. We only know a couple things about him apart from his faith, right? We know two things about this paralyzed individual. He can't move, and he has sins that he's guilty for before God. He's offended God in some way that he needs forgiveness in the first place. That is not a great resume, There is nothing in that that would convey that God should be kind unto him. And yet this is the words that Jesus spoke abundantly to people who are facing spiritual and physical affliction. So don't be mistaken about your own relationship with God. Don't believe for a second that God isn't just as inclined to speak that sort of warmly with each of you on account of your faith. That he isn't just as ready in your physical and spiritual afflictions to look at you and say, child, it's all right. Child, cheer up. There's something about what Jesus says that ends up being, as we move on, a bit of a red line that he's crossed with the religious establishment. And it's not because he said, child, it's all right. You know, and they were perceiving him to be some sort of, you know, tender-hearted ninny or something like that. And that wasn't the issue here. It was the fact that what followed is, your sins are forgiven. Now, who has the power to forgive sin? Sin is an offense against God. Therefore, only God has the ability to forgive those errors and wrongdoings. In the same way that, you know, you cannot absolve the individual who keeps walking through my neighborhood and has his dog dig up my planters... You know, on my behalf, you can't go to them and say, Andrew's all good with it. We're good with it, okay? Because we've forgiven on his behalf. No, it's not all good, all right? I got to deal with this guy. And if that's you, let's talk after service, okay? I'd really like to know. But that's essentially what the claim then becomes. If Jesus is saying, I can forgive sin and only God himself can forgive sin because it's an offense against him, then they are rightly assessing that this is a claim of divinity, But because they are unbelieving in nature, they consider it to be blasphemy. You know, blasphemy is having this contempt for something that is holy, in this case, God's identity. This then is the first time that we see a conflict that begins to develop between the religious establishment and Jesus himself. Because they'll continue to have this perception of Jesus that he is blaspheming, and this becomes the basis for the charges that will lead to his execution. Now, Matthew records that Jesus knew their hearts. He could see their reactions, either visibly or he's Jesus, so he can just, you know, see in living color the attitudes of their hearts. So he tees up this object lesson regarding his divine identity. He says, all right, all right, well, what is easier to say, that your sins are forgiven or take your mat and walk? And, of course, you know, in one sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, easier than it is to actually declare someone who's paralyzed to get up and walk with a single word. You know, that's obviously the easier thing to say. But he says, so that you would know I have the power to do the former, I'm going to declare the latter. 
take up your mat and walk. And the man gets up, takes his mat, and goes home, signifying a complete healing and validating that Jesus actually has the ability to forgive sin. Now, the healing of the man had the intended effect upon the crowds. They all marveled. And in fact, it says in the original language, they were afraid. Okay, they're going, whoa, what's happened in front of us right now? And they were praising God. This episode is a great depiction of what is often deemed signs and wonders in the Bible. This was a healing that pointed to the kingdom of heaven. This was a wonder that broke them out of their monotony in their lives so that they would see Jesus in a new light. And now there are signs and wonders movements today, and I want you to know I believe in miracles as active today, but there are signs and wonders movements today that I need to make mention of that are false because the signs don't point to heaven. They constantly point back to today. And they don't make you wonder about Jesus and his authority and power like we see here in Matthew chapter 9. They make you wonder about the men and women who are supposedly performing them. And they oftentimes don't have anything in common with the exceeding power of Jesus himself. They're signs that point the wrong direction. They're wonders that make you wonder about the wrong thing. Have you guys ever had your Maps app actually lead you in the wrong direction? I know we all blame it, but have you actually had it lead you in the wrong direction? You know, a lot of times when I'd be driving through downtown L.A., it's one of those, you know, junctions where you're going to go left, you're going to go right, you're going to go up, you're going to go down, you're going to do a loop-de-loop. You know, you're going to go all these different directions, right? And it'll say on the Maps app, in 300 feet, stay the course. And you look ahead, and it's like, in 300 feet, there's an embankment. All right, tell me what happens next. I've got eight choices. And sure enough, you know, it's telling you, hold the course, hold the course, and then the turn has come and gone, and you've had to just pick a direction, and then it updates you that you picked the wrong direction. You've got to go eight miles the other direction to get back to where you started. Right? It's a sign that led in the wrong direction. And there are movements like that today that stymie a Christian disciple's growth and maturity because it keeps taking them back to the same exact lesson, the same exact teaching. It's a wonder culture that only makes you wonder about wonder working. It doesn't make you wonder about the kingdom of God to come. And if there are signs that are pointing to the individuals that are performing the signs and not to Jesus, it's missing the whole point. This was a depiction of what will happen for all of us and all the weakness that results from aging and all the sickness and illness and all the deaf hearing and the blind seeing and the lame walking. Those are all pictures of the kingdom of God that is going to come in its fullness that we are hoping toward, that we are confident in. As even more than that, a scene to help awaken us to the only one who has the authority to let us into that kingdom. The only one who has the keys. Ultimately, that's what this healing is about, to demonstrate the authority of Jesus to forgive sin, to reconcile us to God for all of eternity. That was Jesus' mission, his primary mission. If you remember back to Matthew chapter 1, you know, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is hearing uh, you know, that Mary's going to conceive of a child by the Holy Spirit, and they're going to give him what name? They're going to give him the name Jesus, which means God saves because he is going to save his people from their sins. Jesus was sent, this was his primary mission that's being conveyed right now, to come into the world to take on the consequences of our wrongs that were against him, God himself. 
He was going to seek and to save the lost. He was going to go after us to absolve us of our guilt before God that many of us didn't even know we had to the degree that we had it, right? This paralyzed guy, he's going in with all these needs, these earthly needs. That's what he's seeking from Jesus. Now I want to walk. And Jesus was all the more eager to reward his faith with a reconciliation with the man's father in heaven. I know for us, we can miss this greater miracle, this greater gift, this greater healing of Jesus because we, like the paralyzed individual, have all these pressing needs in our life. We have all these things in our mind. We have all these things that we'd like God to do for us. But we fail to realize that we're already the recipient of the greatest gift we could ever receive through faith, which is grace, which is freedom from our sins. Do we know the value of that greater healing today? The value of Jesus turning to each of us and lovingly saying, child, it's all right. Your sins are forgiven. Child, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. You know, it's an easy thing to say your sins are forgiven. It's an easy thing to recollect in our words. But I think it's a hard thing for us to fully comprehend. I want us to attempt to comprehend it in faith this morning as we pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, if we really know our spiritual state apart from you, we'd know that we're as good as that paralyzed man was physically. That we were and are in ourselves absolutely incapable of ridding ourselves of the guilt regarding the offenses we've committed towards you, our failures before you, Lord. And it's not only in the wrong that we've done, but it's been in the good uncommitted that you intended for our lives, Lord. And in all those things, it's you that we have offended. And yet, Lord, we see that you have not only loved us, but you work lovingly with us. In your great kindness, you sought us out to absolve us of the wrongs committed against you. That is the definition of love and conveyed in such a loving way. Lord, I pray that everybody in this room those who have been walking with you their whole life, those who aren't even walking with you, would be able to know the weight and the value of what Jesus spoke to that paralyzed man. It may have been spoken in passing in that setting for those who are listening, but for us, we want to take it to heart right now. The idea that Jesus, you would tell us, child, take heart. Child, it's all right. Child, cheer up. Your sins are forgiven. Lord, we understand for ourselves those sins that have been forgiven. Would we acknowledge the value of this greater, this greatest gift that's already been won for us through the cross? 
I invite you, would you just in this moment of quiet, would you, would you invite the Lord to remind you when He says, child, it's all right, your sins have been forgiven. What does He mean to you? What are those sins that have been erased through this healing of Christ? Ask the Lord to reveal those to you afresh. taking the cup he gave thanks and said take this and divide it among you for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes and he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after the supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you I invite you to receive this communion meal and the acknowledgement of what Jesus has done. He's not only loved us, but he's expressed that to us from such a loving heart. This was his mission. This was the great healing that he wanted to gift each of us with. Let's consider it as we receive this meal and we worship him together this morning. Thanks so much for listening to the Branches HB podcast. For more information on Branches, you can visit our website at brancheshb.com or stay up to date with us on Instagram at brancheshb. As always, we'd love to have you at one of our Sunday gatherings. So come visit us at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Locations are available on our website. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.